Good afternoon, everyone. This is Jan Barris. I'm the Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm delighted to welcome an old friend here today to be part of our Profile series. This is a, well, now it's not so new, but a series that we've been running for a while, but it's a very select one. We've only had a few iterations of this series, and it's for people that the committee knows well, that have been involved with the committee over a number of years. And it's an attempt to get a little more personal and delve into people's backgrounds and their lives and what made them get involved with China or Asia in the first place. So today we're delighted to have Richard Volstek, who is currently the president of the East-West Center, and who's also a man who's had various very interesting jobs that have brought him to Asia, primarily living in Taiwan as the head of the American Chamber of Commerce in Taiwan, and then leaving that to go and become the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. So, Richard, again, welcome. And tell us, where did your interest in the Far East come from in the first place? Well, first, Jan, let me just tell you, it's a, it's a light had this opportunity to chat a bit with you and <clears throat> to give hope to those who think that people who need to plan ahead to be China specialists. <laughs> Not really necessary. I got started in Asia, and it's a typical story, I think, in high school. And I was in Illinois, fall semester of high school in 1961. And I was in a high school English class which would now be called AP English, I guess, but in those days it was college placement English. Mm -hmm. And this is Springfield, Illinois in 1961, which wow, is really- the home of Lincoln. Yes, land of Lincoln indeed. And the teacher came in and she said, besides weekly exams and essays and spelling tests and other sorts of things you have to do, your final paper will be on an Asian topic because I'm interested in Asia. <laughs> So as a, I guess, reasonably intelligent high school student, I raced down to the library, went to the Asia section, which is about a one four-foot shelf at most, I would say, looked for the thinnest book. <laughs> and it turned out to be a collection of Mahatma Gandhi's speeches. Hmm. That's a wonderful introduction to Asia. It was. And I was hooked. And of course, this is when the marches were happening in, right. in the American South. Uh, Martin Luther King was becoming a prominent individual. Apartheid was still a uh, issue in South Africa. So I wrote my paper on th on Gandhi's theory of nonviolence. And five years later, I was a Fulbright scholar in India. Wow, that's and, great. Now, the intervening time, I had hoped to go to East Coast school to school. But my father was very, very ill, and I'm the oldest son of four. So um, I stayed close to home just in mm -hmm. case I had to take over the family. Right. Fortunately, he was one of the first successful mitral valve transplants at oh, all my that's research wonderful. hospitals, so I didn't Good. have to take over the family. But I went to a place called Illinois College, which is the oldest college in the state. And little did I know at that time, the college was in its renaissance period. Hmm. Uh, we had very internationally oriented uh, faculty here in the Midwest, right? Two in particular who had taught in Asia, traveled to Asia extensively, uh, were interested in world religions, especially uh, uh, both Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism. And so I had took all their courses for those two professors as well as other things. And then 
they tied into a, the Fulbright uh, profes- visiting professorial program, which was to bring professors from Asia to teach at Phi Beta Kappa colleges across the United States, a semester at each place. They right. stay for a year or two. So I had five professors and solid courses from Asia. Wow. This at is that tiny college. That tiny <laughs> college in the 60s. One from, uh, let's see, from Korea, Philippines, Taiwan, uh, India, and Burma. Wow, that's a wonderful collection. A great spread, yes. And so... I don't know any... I never... I was at the University of Michigan with this full-blown Asian... We never had a professor from India or the Philippines that I recall. It was extraordinary. And they were were really high flyers. So... And I took... all solid courses, so mm-hmm. political science, uh, Buddhism from the from the from the uh, Burmese professor, um, Indian history from the Indian, and so on and so forth. Uh, he was a Muslim, so it was Indian Muslim history <laughs> primarily. I remember That's very clearly. A, a different viewpoint that you would have gotten <laughs> from others. So anyway, uh, as I say, after I graduated, I applied for a Fulbright, and I was looking. I was interested in, in uh, both Advaita Vedanta, Indian philosophy, and doing do Buddhist studies as well on the side. So. Um, after I got back, um, there's a tradition in my family, duty on our country to serve in the Army. So my grandfather and my father had both served during wartime. So I enlisted in 1967 in the Army, which was probably not the wisest no. move. <laughs> Um, Most other young men were <laughs> running away from it at that point. But, you know, 67. duty honor country. So, wow. Um, ironically, it was assigned. We had graduated 168. 158 were in Vietnam the next week as platoon leaders. And I was sent to Hawaii. Wow. And not as an infantryman, but as... Uh, I would hope not. As a, I was commissioned in intelligence. Right. So I landed in Hawaii, was at, assigned to U.S. Army Pacific at Fort Shafter. And there were five or six slots open. They said, what do you want to do? And I said, one of them was a China desk. And I, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot of study on China up to that, even though I was had been done index studies Mm -hmm. and so I chose that and within two months desk officer chief chief of the desk was transferred and I was made chief Chief of the desk desk. in a major's position (laughs) as a as a as a lieutenant a lot of officers were going out of the headquarters because of Tet Offensive and other things going on in Vietnam but but I'm sure you would have made it to that position even without that well whatever there I was and so I was briefing the general staff And then about seven months before I finished my military, then I, uh, my, my, my enlistment time, I was seconded to Admiral McCain's staff, John McCain's father, who was yes. Commander-in-Chief Pacific yes. at that time, wow. to do a, um, a Soviet Far East brief. There was a Sino-Soviet border dispute going on, which I mm-hmm. watched from both directions, uh, kind of under the radar during Vietnam, but very, very serious along the Usuri River right. around Xinjiang. Right. And it could have become, I mean, there was one, talk at one point of nuclear action by the Russians. Hmm. And so, um, so I monitored that, and I was asked to go to SyncPAC to uh, work on the Army section of an Army-Navy Air Force uh, assessment of Soviet forces in the Far East since the World War II. What was really happening, of course, was looking at the same invasion routes that the Soviets had used before, if, in case that should happen again, which should China and, and, and the Soviets get into war. So I, I I briefed thirteen stars just before I got out of the uh, out of the uh, out of the service, which is pretty heady stuff for yeah. twenty seven, twenty six, something like that. I forget. Anyway, I got hooked on China, pretty much at that point. 
So I went to, I applied for various places when I was still in the army. And the only place that offered a PhD in Chinese philosophy was the University of Hawaii. Wow, and, and you were right there. And I was right there. I was accepted, and so I started doing the China shtick for a decade at the East West Center and the University of Hawaii. Hmm. And I must say, the East West Center was extraordinary. We had you know, 45 different nationalities in the dormitory system, lots of activities underway. I was able to do, uh, be, as a graduate student, besides my university things, work on projects at the East-West Center, both as when I was a graduate student, but also when I was, when I was still writing my dissertation, had contracts, two in research and two in administration. And the research one, one was working with Chun Ho Park and Nam Duk Wu on Law of the Sea issues before the law, before that was... <laughs> before you know, there was a Law of the Sea. Before it right. was Law of the Sea, which is, I remember one weekend, uh, we were at a, at a meeting on Friday, so we'll continue this on Monday, and Chun Ho Park was the only one there, and uh, Nam Duk Wu turned out he had been called back to be premier. <laughs> <laughs> so I had some very interesting early, early, uh, early uh, context. Context. With- but during that period, most important one by far, I was a uh, fellow, a visiting fellow at Harvard Law School at East Asian Legal Studies when Jerry Cohen was still, uh, who became one of my real mentors, actually, and still is. Um, in more ways maybe than others, not only intellectually and, and, and just the, the kind of uh, tone approach to China, but the way he ran East Asian legal studies was a good indication for the way I've run offices and roundtables subsequently. Mm-hmm. He really knew how to bring people together on an even uh, platform and get them really talking with each other with on significant issues. He still does that. If, I, he has these lecture series down at the U.S. Asia Law Institute at NYU, where he is now, and he'll invite someone in who everybody wants to hear something really substantive from the person, and Jerry brings them in. And the first at least three quarters of the interview is not about the content. It's about sort of what we're doing now. It's about the person and their life and how they got involved and where they went to school and what their parents did, etc. So it's so, a wonderful thing. Because it was. It was. And, and, and so I, you know, now interesting enough, um, when the, I was a, a student at the East West Center, they were advertising for a new president. Victor Lee eventually took that position mm-hmm. at that time. It was 1981. But I had written a, 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 a job description for the president, which was based on an old advertising approach for a position where only one person would apply. I won't go into details, <laughs> but it was kind of a bit funny. It was from Parkinson's Law, in the, one of the chapters in his book uh, a long time ago. And, and I had Jerry Cohen in mind because he embodied what I thought would be the perfect president of the East West Center. Instead, of course, he went to Conair Brothers and right. other things and did wonderful things, but he would have been a good president. Anyway, to make a get to on with it, I, then what really happened, I taught at the university until 1986 after I finished my PhD. I was actually teaching as soon as I finished my master's. Uh, I was older when I went to graduate school, and um, I, give me a microphone and I'm dangerous, you know. So I was, <laughs> it was really, uh, I really enjoyed teaching a lot. I probably have all the jobs I've had, and I worked in six or seven sectors over the years. Um, I would say teaching, especially the, um, the seminar roundtable thing, is really hard to beat. I really miss that sort of stuff. Anyway. Um, I got a call in 80s, early 86 um, from the uh, uh, Foreign Service Institute, State Department, asking me if I would be interested in going to Taiwan 
to be the area studies coordinator at the Chinese language and area studies school where we hmm. train our diplomats. Mm -hmm. In Taichung at and the time. Well, at that time, it had been already moved to already Yam moved Yamingshan. It was Yamingshan. And so... Um, That's a shame, because Taichung was a lovely place. Yes, yeah, so it was <laughs> really, really. But anywho, um, so I, I had decided, one, that I was going to have to either go to a small college to teach where they really appreciated teaching, or do something else, because the advance in the field at the, at the best universities, the trend was to be narrower and narrower right. in scope. And I'm admittedly a journalist at heart. Mm -hmm. So so I leaped at this, thought I'd write a book up and so forth, come back after a couple of years to the States and you know, yep. leave the University of Hawaii, go someplace else to teach. Well, I kept falling into jobs that were just too good to leave. So uh, one of them, was to become the editor of the National Magazine of Taiwan in English that was uh, uh, distributed around the world. Oh, I used to read that assiduously. Yeah. Taiwan Free Today, Time Free, Ta Free Time Review. It was a wonderfully beautiful magazine, I and you always had that. That was you. Yes. I never knew that. <laughs> you had those great sections on an artist and his or her work, and on a cultural and a. Tr it was a wonderful magazine. I loved getting that. So what happened? Uh, it was really kind of serendipity wow. sort of thing. I, so I, when I was still working at the class position, I mean, the, the State Department was really not a full-time job. So I was doing other editing in town and so forth like you normally do in Taiwan. And I had some contacts. So I was entertaining an economic newspaper and a couple other things. And I got the call. Would you just, there's an opening on this uh, at the Free China Review, which I tried to get named to the Taipei Review. So go face-to-face -face with the Beijing Review. Right. That was a much better magazine. When I got there, it wasn't that great a magazine. It was a great layout, but had not had proofreading and introduced yet and so forth. But serendipitously, uh, Xiao Yuming, who was, uh, became Director General of the Government Information Office, who's a mm -hmm. uh, University of Chicago educated, uh, did his dissertation on the history of Beijing University, hmm. um, got the word that, you know, um, if you're going to have a national magazine, I was also translating a German, French, Spanish, and Russian. So the English had to be right. Um, so if you're going to have a national magazine, spend all that money, have a magazine, not a propaganda piece. Right. Right? Right. So we had a long talk, and basically my writ was to make it a real magazine. And then, again serendipitously, within just a few months, martial law was lifted in Taiwan. Oh. So you really and could I, make it a national magazine. Then I had 10 right. years wow. of tracking social, political, economic, cultural transformation of mm -hmm. Taiwan from martial law through democracy. That's great. It had been a social and political philosophy and intellectual history. I knew what kind of questions to ask. Right. Plus, when I was translating Buddhist texts for my sins many years <laughs> ago, uh, I saw in the, in the stacks next to me in my carol at the university, uh, James Thurber's uh, biography of Harold Ross, the founder of the New Yorker. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I've been a New Yorker reader for years and years. That book is terrific. Uh, then I got hooked in the Algonquin Circle, so I mm -hmm. started reading everything, bio biographies, and actually going back to the New Yorkers, reading their pieces, FPA and Alexander Wolcott, Haywood Brun, Robert Benchley, uh, Dorothy Parker, I mean, the whole crew. And reading about the New Yorker, well, the ironic, ironic part of this is, or the, the serendipitous part, I should say, I took over a magazine with no training in journalism, and I knew how to run a magazine. From reading that book? Yeah, from reading the books. You know, I knew about layout, how to deal with writers, you know, uh, um, 
cover selection, all this kind of stuff. Just it was there. It was like I had just <laughs> great training, totally unconscious. <laughs> and so um, I did introduced um, a lot of uh, changes to the magazine. Brought in a lot of to give it to give it credibility. Brought in writers on China and across mm-hmm. straight relations and so over the United States. Uh, all the big names, really. Uh, uh, I remember the the most uh, the one I interviewed as much as often as I could was Bob Scalapino, of course, who spoke in paragraphs, right? And <laughs> fully lit- punctuated paragraphs. It literally. I, I I remember I wrote him a note after one interview, and I said, you know, Bob, I took out three of courses. And he would even pause when he was talking, like he was indenting. I, I, I've never, I never, quite never, inter- never inter- encountered anybody quite like that. Anyway, so I done, you know, Andrew Nathan, and you know, just all, you know, John, everybody writing for the magazine, book reviews and columns, and then I started tapping people in Hong Kong as well. So that was great fun. So was, there's a book in that for me someday, you know, kind of being present at the transformation. Right. Uh, so then. Anyway, I did that for a decade, 12 years, one Chinese cycle. And then I did a, 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 wrote a history of the American school on contract and then did nine years running the American Chamber of Commerce um, uh, in Taiwan. Uh, made it turn that into much more of a lobbying organization than it had been before. And beefed it, up its magazine, too, I and bet. And beefed up its magazine. I hired, I hired magazine. a guy I knew yeah. who from had been New York Times bureau chief. And that became, Topics Magazine became right. a real, real resource. And then, uh, of course, was recruited to go to Hong Kong in 2008 uh, to run the chamber there until I got the call asking, like, to go come full come circle. Come home. Pay it forward, really. <laughs> right. Go back to Hawaii. So, you know, I just, uh, I've never, really haven't really ever applied for a job. They keep people just calling me with good things to do. And um, the interesting thing, Jan, if I look back, you know, I started with kind of a broad Asia focus, and I focused on China. And of course, the China field went through book China, this, that, and so forth. And then people got more specialized. So it was, uh, you know, magistrate handbooks from the Ming Dynasty and the, <laughs> and uh, Fujian Province kind of things. Right. And you know, very specialized things. And then, it, then I guess I guess one of the early signalers of the change was David Shambaugh's book on China's goes global. Where really, if you're going to do China anymore, you got to do China globally. Right. And so now the job I'm in at the East West Center is uh, we cover the same 36 countries that Indo Indo uh, that uh, Indo PACOM mm-hmm. uh, that you did when you were in the military. I was in the military, so it's kind of a full circle there, mm-hmm. and it gives me an opportunity uh, to build on even further what I was doing in Hong Kong, which was taking business delegations around the region, especially for transportation, logistics, financial services, and apparel footwear for supply chain sorts of things. And so I'm back into the big picture. China's in the middle of it. It is. Uh, because of the uh, Idai Lu, the One Belt, One Road, and, and other kinds of activities, uh, positive and nefarious, going on that uh, really requires a you know, close and critical eye. Um, I'm indebted to people like you know James Lilly, who gave me uh, uh, some real insights on analytic approach to China, uh, to Jerry Cohen, of course, for his guidance off and on for years and years on uh, how to maintain the right tone and be critical, and yet uh, the bottom line, I think, is stay engaged. 
uh, course, crossing t uh, paths with the committee off and on for decades. When the first ping pong, post ping pong group came through to the United States, they stopped in Hawaii, and I was a translator for that, some of the people. That was I think our the first Wushu time. team. That's right. I think that's the first time we met. That, that. that was. That was uh, June of 1974. That's right. That's right. So. And you know who was on that delegation? I don't know if you recall, but it had, I honestly had not remembered that we met then. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, there were, if you recall, there were about 35 adults in that group and three little children. A young woman, a little 10-year-old girl and a 9-year-old boy and an 11-year-old boy. And the 9-year-old boy grew up to be Jet Li. <laughs> Jeez. No, I didn't. Know, don't remember that. It, was, it would have been a nice memory to be on a report, but uh, I'll tell the story like I did anyway no, next time. You can. <laughs> but I, you know, I remember, uh, you know, those encounters with that group. Every time I asked something, they recorded their little red book to me in return <laughs> before they said anything else. But um, I, I've been, I've been. You know, there are big potatoes in, in, the, in the China field. There are big potatoes and small potatoes, and there's a parsley in the small potatoes. It's kind of what I am. <laughs> no, no, I think you're and, right and, above the parsley. But, but, I've been, but I've been really lucky to be in all the jobs I've had, uh, kind of the intersection of U.S., Asia, and specifically China policy, uh, doing something. And it's been a great run. Uh, it keeps the mind alive, meets some wonderful people. And I do think that... Uh, in the small things that my various institutions that I've run over the years um, have made a difference in some way and, and get, at least getting clear understanding of whether it was Taiwan or China or whatever, um, Hong Kong, um, of course, most recently. And, you know, I, I did a lot of work um, in, the, in Hong Kong just before I moved to Taiwan. It's hard to leave Hong Kong for me. I really like that job a lot. Um, but looking at the synergies developing between South China and Hong Kong and Macau, and but the potential for real success and, of course, the potential for screwing it up big time, which is usually the, the, the dichotomy in most things we look at, um, how that works out and still trying to work out is really kind of exciting. Um, the big thing I miss um, in, in Honolulu is being eyebrow deep in international business people, which was ex truly extraordinary. Right. I mean, people on the plane two or three weeks a month all over the region, all over the globe, actually, and being in touch with them. The very, we had 24 business committees at the chamber. Um, I still keep in touch. I was just in Hong Kong a few weeks ago and trying to maintain the business connections in the region. I'm active in the, in the Asia Pacific Council of American Chambers, which covers the 29 chambers in Asia Pacific as a board member. Um, but now I'm dealing more with military and diplomatic personnel in Hawaii, interestingly enough, uh, more than I anticipated. And it is uh, keeping the mind alive. And I'm you know, looking forward to see what the next job's going to be after I get the East-West Center <laughs> fixed. <laughs> you can come here. <laughs> you can take my job. <laughs> I know better to try to fill your shoes. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's this has been wonderful. I am delighted that I we figured out, or you didn't figure, you knew that I figured out that we've known each other longer than I thought we had, and we thank you very much for taking your time to do this. I think it's a it's been really interesting hearing you go from one job to another and being, I should say, 
from the outside extraordinary success, extraordinarily successful in all of them. So right. I wish you the best of luck at the East West Center, and I know you'll be equally great there as well. Well, I, 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 I guess everyone appreciates the opportunity to talk about, about oneself. I did break David Hume's dictum, which was, um, and he, just before he passed away, he wrote an essay called My Life. And the mm -hmm. first sentence was, it is vain to speak of oneself at length, therefore I shall be brief. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that brief note, thank you so much. We really appreciated it.